Welcome to the Virginia Economic Review podcast. This is Stephen Moray with the Virginia Economic Development Partnership, and I'm delighted to welcome you today to the Virginia Economic Review podcast. We're delighted to have with us today three of the top site consultants in the country who, among other things, are experts in the food and beverage industry. First of all, we have Brian Cord, who's the founder and managing partner of Atlas Insights. We have Scott Cooperman, who's the founder of Cooperman Location Solutions. And we also have Brandon Talbert, a managing director with Austin Consulting. So welcome to all three of you. And before we kind of jump into the discussion, perhaps could do a little bit of a brief introduction from each of you. I'd ask you to provide a bit of an overview of your firm and your work in the F&B sector, and then we'll dive in. And why don't we start with Brian Cord, then we'll go to Scott Cooperman and finish up with Brandon Talbert. So Brian. Great, Stephen. Thank you. Pleasure to be on with you. Atlas Insight is a site selection and tennis consulting firm headquartered in New Jersey. We don't have a particular specialty in the food and beverage industry, but we've completed quite a number of projects in that space. Terrific. And Scott? Yeah, Stephen, thanks again for having me participate on the discussion. I've been doing site selection now for a little bit cheapish to say somewhere around 20 years, initially with a larger engineering and construction management firm. But about nine years ago, I decided I want to go off on my own and do it as a sole proprietor. And when I made that move, I very distinctly wanted to specialize in something and be able to focus and help a fairly narrow segment of companies looking for a site solution. And I decided it was going to be the food and beverages. So I'm one of the few consultants who I think tell the world that that's what they focus on. And for me, food and beverage not only includes you know consumer products that we all eat or drink, but also working with companies in the grocery industry who have a warehouse need. And more recently, with companies sort of in the health and nutraceutical side, as well as food packaging, which is becoming more and more active as, a, as an industry subsegment. Terrific. Thank you, Scott. And Brandon? Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me join you. I'm with Austin Consulting. We're a site selection consulting group based in Cleveland, Ohio. Actually, a, the site location consulting division of the Austin Company, which is a large design build firm. About half of our business is working with clients in the food and beverage industry. So I've been with Austin for approaching eight years now, and our companies had a dedicated site location consulting group for almost 80 years. So good to be on and look forward to the discussion. Wonderful. Well, very grateful for all three of you guys making time for this and look forward to being able to share your insights in Virginia Economic Review. So jumping right in, as you think about what you're seeing in the food and beverage industry with your clients, as well as kind of what you see in the sector more broadly, what are you seeing out there as the major trends that will affect company operations and location decisions over the next few years in food and beverage specifically? I think the, the changes that we've seen over the last couple of years have really kind of formulated the trend that I think will continue over the next few years, and that is there's a lot of shifting in customer choice, a lot of what I'll call lifestyle brands of companies kind of popping up with products. In addition to that, there's been a very key consideration by companies to shorten their distribution model, not only from the standpoint of getting a product to customers in certain key areas, but then also the proximity of their manufacturing locations to their raw materials. As consumers are kind of forcing the change of fresher ingredients and more availability of those ingredients, we're kind of seeing a major shift in the thought process on location of the manufacturing operations, as well as the distribution network. And I would expect that to continue. Cool. 
Sure. I'll uh, certainly add and, you know, and, and agree with everything Brian said. There's three kind of general factors that I would say are common to what almost every project I'm working on is looking for. One is because the margins in the, you know, in this industry are terrible, low cost locations, especially on the production side, are really becoming, you know, areas of focus and any place that can offer very competitive costs relative to real estate, labor, utilities, and, you know, more generosity on the incentive side, definitely are going to have an advantage. The second thing is that almost any food and beverage company is obsessed with risk, both the risk associated with the time, cost, and brain damage of getting a new facility, finding a new location and putting a facility in place, and certainly with the risk associated with operating it, both in a clean and you know, non-contaminated, good regulatory compliance status. And there's been plenty of stories out there about companies that have it, and the damage done to those businesses can be tremendous. And then lastly, I think picking up on what Brian said, companies in the food and beverage industry right now are living and dying on their ability to put new ideas into production quickly, which is really what they call innovation. They've got to be incredibly nimble and responsive to consumer trends and demands and be able to change what they do in every regard very quickly. So I always encourage people in economic development to think out of the box and tell a story about what resources their community has that can contribute to that need to innovate. I'll just piggyback on a couple of those points and, and add a couple of other things. So I think we're seeing an unprecedented level of innovation in the food and beverage industry in the United States, and not just in the United States, but I think especially here. There's a few different reasons. You know, One is the culinary bar has really been raised here in the United States, people become exposed to new food and there's more of a willingness to try new things and to also prepare new foods. So we see that trickle down into the manufacturing sector really with all of kind of a, what I'd say is a number of different factors that are driving that. Everything from dietary preferences to allergies and just consumer awareness of what they're consuming, more attention to the ingredient in clean label products. And you're seeing manufacturers have to respond very quickly to that. There's an increased level of focus on efficiency and being very cost conscious, not only with transportation costs, but all operating costs. Terrific. Well, that provides kind of a good overview for us of some of the big trends. Kind of digging in a little bit more granular level, as you think about some of the site searches you've done recently and others that you're anticipating doing, what are the main location criteria that companies are thinking about and how are they kind of prioritizing those things? Number one is labor. We've seen clients that have had to really take a close look at their wages and benefits. In this market, the competition has really been a challenge for many food companies. And I think companies have responded to that by trying to improve their wages, but also control their wages when looking at new locations. And But not only that, but be able to locate in places where they can ensure that they have an adequate labor force to support the project. A lot of companies in the industry have struggled with that. So that's probably the biggest point of sensitivity for most companies when selecting a location. So here's what I'll tell you, Steve, is that more than ever on a case-by-case -case basis, the mix of priorities changes. You know, from, from company to company, sometimes from the same company year to year. And the most important part of a project is you know, working with your client, 
to get their priorities straight. Labor, real estate, time to deliver the facility and the project are all you know, critical factors. But more and more, I think it depends on whether or not the company has an outward-facing consumer brand that they want to protect and uphold and try to find an overall solution that can contribute to that. You know, companies that do, I find, get very selective on what's the brand, evaluating what the brand of the community is and, you know, try to make a match in that capacity and, you know, in, in some regard. Companies that don't, the location will probably be a little more generic and, you know, more focused on, on some of the traditional metrics, as Brandon talked about, labor certainly being a key one, but delivery time, operating costs would be, you know, kind of fall into the typical kind of review. Terrific. So thinking about those, with those location criteria kind of in mind, obviously you guys have traveled across the country quite a bit. You've met with regional groups, state groups, local groups. As you think about the range of experiences that you've had across the country, what do you think states and regions can do to better position themselves to attract the food and beverage industry in particular? First thing is, I always tell economic developers, if you're going to focus on this or any other target industry, you got to tell a story. And do more than, you know, just kind of put a load of data together and dump it in front of us. I think, especially in this industry, the basis of a compelling argument is to say we've got and can demonstrate a successful history of companies in the food and beverage industry already being here, both potentially as a legacy and some newer ones. And there's all different types of manufacturers going on here. And we want to show you that we have the capacity for more as it relates to real estate, as it relates to labor. And, you know, labor, is, as Brandon said, is going to be tough, but you got to do the best job you can to demonstrate what availability you have and what kind of skills are present and what training you have to further develop that market. Food and beverage companies do not like pioneering and being the first of that sort going into an area where it's been predominantly, you know, pharma or auto or textiles. They like going into a place knowing that they can minimize their risk by having resources already there to support their type of industry. So if those factors are prevalent in your community, I think that's a way to frame your argument to attract more. Terrific. Brian, I realize I didn't let you answer the previous question. It'd be great to hear your <laughs> thoughts okay. on that as, as well as what states and regions can do to position themselves to attract more investment in f and Yeah, I think probably on what, what Scott said, you know, I, I do think that we're seeing quite a bit of a desire for the clustering effect to take place. And I think that that speaks a lot to Scott's point, demonstrating that there is a critical mass of professionals there that have a familiarity with this type of industry is, is really critical to achieving that success. In addition to that, I think if you're kind of thinking outside the box, two areas that I think would be really important to kind of focus in on is the complete supply chain analysis uh, for a company. So it's not just about the easy ones. Okay, where are your customers? Where are your raw materials? While those are extremely important, it's also about you know, how much opportunity is there for uh, your entire process? Is the packaging of those products readily available? Can we get, let's say, bottling done or can we get Tetra Pak products in there easily? And then in addition to that, I, I would also say that there's opportunities for identification of logistical advantages. So we know how critical logistics are as part of the food manufacturing supply chain. But if there are unique opportunities, like let's say, 
opportunities where there's a lot of LTL backhaul type of opportunities with trucks. If there's rail access and, and maybe somebody that's been producing a product, particularly by bringing in their raw materials via truck before, but now maybe have the opportunity to bring in via rail. Those can be significant game changers for those types of operations. And demonstrating that during the site location process, I think, would be some things that economic development agencies could do to really win them over. Well, I think God and Brian touched on a really good point about the clustering effect. And, you know, there's less perceived risk when you're going into a community that or a region that has demonstrated that other food and beverage companies are operating successfully there. They're finding the people they need, that they're able to, the utility capacity that's available, particularly with some of the demands on certain food and beverage processes around water and wastewater that can be significant, that there's a friendly operating environment. And from a transportation standpoint, being able to benefit from areas that have a good supply of trucks and particularly with companies that ship a lot of their product in refrigerated trucks, access to those lanes can be a real advantage for locating near. In, in areas that don't have other food plants. We've also seen some companies find success when you see an opportunity to differentiate yourself from other employers in the market. But I think the critical thing is that the community and the region, the state, have a supportive environment. They've demonstrated they understand what it takes to support these kinds of industry, and they've expressed interest in locating in there. And that sends a positive message to companies that are really interested in these kind of plans and establishing, you know, a good relationship with the community long term. Are there infrastructure investments that could be made by locality or state to help position an area to attract food and beverage processing industry? I'm thinking, for example, sometimes there are certain types of wastewater system yeah. uh, parameters that, that could be helpful for some operations, for example. That's exactly where, where probably I would start because I think those are the two biggest infrastructure needs that, that a community would have. And particularly, this is for the beverage industry. But, you know, even in the food industry, there's a lot of washdown that needs to happen of the equipment after a certain number of production shifts. So water and wastewater capacity are two critical elements of infrastructure that are definitely needed. We've also seen, and I think this is a function, maybe a little bit of the economy as well, but there's also kind of a challenge right now with the availability of existing buildings. You know, there just doesn't seem to be a great amount of inventory in that space, and that can be a challenge. And so if you, you count that kind of as an infrastructure item, you know, having uh, buildings that can be repurposed, but that have the infrastructure that's required to them already, and that could be electrical capacity and, uh, again, water and wastewater capacity, those are all, I think, critical components of infrastructure improvements that can be made uh, to help to ease the burden on the companies that are, are out there looking for new sites. Terrific. Scott, anything you would add to that? If I were in a community, and I think the answer is going to depend on really how much they want to invest. I think at the first level, having a handful of sites that have access and full utility infrastructure in place to the property perimeter, certainly including a pretty robust wastewater treatment system, public gas, public water and sewer, and enough power for a project of this size. To be able to have sites maybe between 10 and 30 acres that really are, are well positioned for these types of companies would give many communities an advantage because I, I, I agree with Brian about the availability of buildings. We're starting to see 
a lack of really viable near-term ready sites just because, you know, the overall health of the economy and a lack of investment in ready-to-go sites. In the food industry in particular, if they want to take it one step further and they're investing in real estate as an economic development tool, I would do a little bit of preliminary planning and try to create an environment that has a significant amount of buffer around it. Many of these types of processing facilities are not going to do well in a very high-density park. Are they going to you know, get excited about a park that has mixed uses and there's a potential threat of an incompatible use um, yep. on an adjacent property coming up at some point in their future? So some planning to show that there's been thought around that and from a zoning or restrictive covenant standpoint and just size, Offering some extra buffer and protection would be time and effort well spent. Terrific. Um, Brandon, what, what would you add? Well, I, I would agree we're seeing a serious shortage of suitable properties, of really ready-to-go properties in the right locations. And so I think with a lot of these plants, they're so specialized, and it's often more expensive to go in and renovate an existing building that doesn't really meet the requirements. So this available space isn't a perfect fit. We're seeing a, a trend towards more of these projects starting with Greenfield in mind. And so I think with that, having an inventory of properties that are ready to go with all the utilities available, looking at your wastewater treatment plant, and not just looking at the total capacity, but really looking at, is it designed to handle large volumes of organic waste associated with many food plants, not just domestic wastewater? Really knowing what your assets are and then looking at addressing some of those infrastructure deficiencies beforehand will get you more looks. The cost of having to invest in pretreatment facility can be millions of dollars, and it's not something that most companies want to have to do. It requires more space. So I think to the point about incompatible uses, having either planning in place to address that or being willing to impose restrictions that support concerns that a company may have, whether it's concern over allergens or heavy metals or really heavy industry that's incompatible with these types of plants, even if it doesn't exist today, being receptive to making those modifications is something that many companies in this industry are looking for. It's very helpful starting to kind of provide that picture of what, what could work. As you think about Virginia, I know you guys have a little bit of experience with the Commonwealth, and certainly you don't all three need to answer this unless you have thoughts to share, but what qualities do you think help position Virginia as a good location for food and beverage processing sites? And just for context, one of the first things that I learned coming on board in the Commonwealth was that that was a really big part of our state. Think about folks who often talk about the Shenandoah Valley, for example, and other parts of Virginia that have been able to attract and really cultivate that critical mass that you guys were talking about earlier. But just curious about perceptions of Virginia relative to this particular space. I had my fourth project land in Virginia through an announcement last week. And I Thank think you. at least I can do for you. Two out of those four, Stephen, have been companies based in California who've located their second facility in Virginia. So you, I think you've got a lot of advantages. You're really kind of well positioned to be, you know, central to the eastern half of the U.S., you're a right-to-work state. 
You've got good access to population you know, centers north and south of you. One of your biggest assets is a good mix of both metropolitan areas that have low-cost kind of collar communities around them, and then some really interesting and authentic smaller communities, especially in the western part of the state. And I think, you know, companies from the West Coast or other parts of the country see value in coming to the, you know, a a beautiful part of your state and communities that kind of value a healthy, outdoor, authentic lifestyle and and community brand. And I think the Shenandoah Valley is taking advantage of that. I think Roanoke, where the project I just worked on ended up, has a lot more runway and, and can capture more of those companies. I really think that, you know, the state is poised to gain more of these types of companies. Terrific. Brandon, any, any thoughts from your perspective? From a distribution standpoint, we find ourselves looking at Virginia a lot of times for a single plant strategy in the eastern U.S. or a single plant for a particular product line in the eastern U.S. because of your location. You're very close to the East Coast, New York, D.C., and then you, you, from, from Virginia, you've got good access to the Southeast and Midwest as well. And so when we run through the freight cost modeling on a lot of these types of scenarios, Virginia usually ranks very well. And so I think that's a, that's a real advantage. And I think on top of that, Scott touched on this, just the diversity of the state from the eastern half to the western half to the mountain region. Companies where, you know, finding the the right cultural fit is important. We've had clients have real interest in that, positioning their brand around a, a community that kind of aligns with their culture and their brand. And so you've got a lot of diversity in proximity to D.C., one of the most diverse cities you know, in the country, I think, is a real advantage for the state of Virginia as well for, for companies, even foreign companies coming to the U.S. perhaps for the first time. And I think that the importance of agriculture and food in the state of Virginia, you know, are, are well known. And there's a, there's a culture that's supportive of the industry there, and particularly in, in certain regions like the Shenandoah Valley. So I think Virginia has a lot going for it. Perfect. Brian, anything you'd want to add there? Yeah, I think Brandon hit on that that last point there is one of the, the big ones that I thought. I mean, in addition to Virginia just being a place that really just, quote, unquote, gets it, right? I mean, I think you, you guys have a great business climate that you've been able to build there. And Virginia is a, a state that has agricultural roots, you know, even going back to tobacco. And, and I, I think that plays, you know, heavily into the ability to kind of attract and, and make those in the food industry feel very comfortable with the product that they'll they'll be able to find by locating there. And then I don't want to downplay the importance of the water. So not only the abundance of the water, but the quality of the water, too, has really set itself apart from a lot of the other areas uh, across the country. And for those that are that have real concerns or this is a critical part of their analysis, you know, that water quality and water availability really will continue to drive quite a bit of looks your way. Having a really solid port, you know, in the Virginia Beach area is for some companies is going to be a big differentiator as well. Mm-hmm. No, that's a great point. Was it Brian who just came to visit our, our the Port of Virginia recently? What were your impressions? Yeah, it was fantastic. In particular, the thing that's so impressive to me is the amount of continuous investment 
uh, at the port facility there. There is a uh, real desire to continue to be a major player on the eastern seaboard. And in addition to that, the amount of technology that continues to be implemented in the port is just staggering to me, you know, to see the operations, the crane operators, you know, being able to work the cranes, uh, most of the smaller cranes remotely, which obviously speeds uh, a lot of the process up. And when those crate operators are not actively loading and unloading containers, there is a, you know, a computerized system that's constantly stacking and restacking the containers, you know, based upon the knowledge of when certain trucks are going to arrive and and when those trucks arrive, what containers they're going to need to pull from. So having the ability to not have to dig a container out at a very busy port uh, saves a tremendous amount of time. Being able to do the inspections from a remote point of view really is just a a game changer. And it was great to see the, the amount of continuous investment going into that facility. Yeah, roughly a billion has been completed completed investment in the last few years and another half a billion or so on the way as we move the Port of Virginia to being the deepest port on the East Coast. So it'll be 55 feet and higher, depending on the particular location. That's really an amazing facility, great asset for the Commonwealth of Virginia. I know we touched on talent a little bit earlier. There were some comments about cost of labor you know, being really important. As you think about talent, what kind of talent considerations come into play for food and beverage operations? And are there things that states and educational partners can do to build a workforce for those pro- types of projects? Also curious if there are any states or programs that you might cite, doesn't have to be in Virginia, that have impressed you in that respect. You know, it really runs the gamut. You're seeing the skill level required from operators, technicians increase from what it's been historically. And the area that, not unlike other industries, many food companies really have the most difficult time staffing are the positions associated with maintaining all of the equipment particularly in some of these plants that are highly automated, have very expensive refrigeration equipment. Having a skilled workforce and training programs to support those requirements is very important. And then at the managerial level, you see a lot of people in the food industry tend to move around. They're pretty mobile. Being in an area that attractive for folks from different parts of the country and even world to relocate and having a kind of assets in place and community housing in terms of community appeal and the, the type of amenities that, that people are looking for can be a real big driver, particularly for some companies that are really concerned about making sure that they're going to be able to relocate the talent that they may not be able to find in the marketplace. Totally agree on the whole maintenance side. Uh, That's going to be vital to almost any operation. I would say, Steve, that one of the assets that you do have is the growth of the food science program at Virginia Tech. Not all companies are going to need people with that level of expertise or degree attainment, but most projects I work on really like to know that there's programs involved, you know, both as a means of getting talent and potentially a means to test or develop some of their products and that, you know, resident within the state. And they look very favorably upon that. And there are people at Virginia Tech who I've interacted with who get involved in economic development on behalf of that program and who do it extremely well and make it very clear how companies can partner with the university to take advantage of what they have. And I would certainly add it's going to be of increasing importance to have training programs that can contribute to operational ability to maintain a safe, healthy, and, you know, free of contagion work environment, too. 
guys really touched on the two biggest areas, I think. I mean, anytime we're working with food and beverage product, I would always say that food safety is their number one concern. And so, as Scott mentioned, you know, training at the university, let's say, level for certain positions within the facility is extremely important to assure that those safety procedures are being developed and implemented and followed. Extremely important. But then even, you know, down to the production workers, you know, having those training classes that are available regarding food safety, I think, is one of the critical things that we see from a production workforce standpoint that these companies are are really interested in. So it it really is kind of a top-down training model, starting with, you know, some of your great folks that might be in the facility, extending to the maintenance personnel and, and having the ability to upkeep that equipment. And, and from a welding standpoint, you know, particularly if you're working with a lot of stainless steel piping and things like that in a mm-hmm. sterile environment, and then, you know, down to the production workers and the ability to make sure that they're understanding the, the critical importance of food safety and how important of a role this, this plays in the overall industry in general. Shifting gears again, you know, Virginia has long been known for its wine operations, and recently we've seen an uptick in beer production as well over the last several years with um, craft beer uh, breweries and so forth. To the extent you guys have worked on those types of projects, what factors do you see to play into those location decisions that may be a little different than, you know, a more typical food and beverage uh, processing operation? I'll take a stab at it. Those types of companies are all about their brand. And the few that I've worked with are extremely picky about where they go relative to is there going to be some sort of energy behind their brand in that community based on who's already there, based on local demographics, their flow of tourism in some way that they can piggyback on. A lot of those companies are now turning to craft cocktails and you know interesting sparkling water which are very high growth segments in in the beverage industry. It just doesn't happen to be beers. They're going to be concerned with very similar things, you know, trying to further their brand and get some energy behind it based on where they are. A lot of companies in that segment of the beverage industry are very sensitive to brand, as Scott mentioned, and in cultural fit. And a lot of times that's tied to the brand and it's just tied to the culture of the company and the way they kind of operate. You know, a lot of them have connectivity to the outdoors, particularly where you see a lot of these companies started out as startups and still have that kind of startup culture in many ways. So I think there's still a lot of room for innovation in the industry. And I think another important factor for that is, and you see in some states, particularly in the Southeast, just antiquated alcohol laws that restrict the company's ability to distribute within the state the way they want to distribute and in some cases provide access to the public. There's been a lot of improvements with just the recent growth in the industry, but I I think that Virginia was kind of at the forefront of making some of those changes that really date back to, you know, prohibition era and making it a, a much more friendly environment. And I think being kind of nimble as as things change and companies kind of want to do more to create a positive visitor experience that supports their brand and ability to innovate is is going to be important from a policy standpoint going forward. It's not an industry that we've spent a lot of time working in. We haven't completed a project in that industry, but just as as a fan of, of some of those products, I would say that the craft brewing industry, there is a little bit of instability in that market because I'm not sure if we can really sustain the level of growth that we've seen. But I also don't think that trends are going to reverse from the standpoint of 
consumers wanting to have what they view perceived to be, you know, kind of fresher, more crafted type of products. And I think we've seen a lot of that in the beer industry. But what's amazing to me always about Virginia is that in particular, the Richmond area, you know, this is a segment that was popular in Richmond before it got, you know, really quote unquote cool uh, to be in this space. And the Richmond area has always had a, a history of of having great local breweries there and, and great products. And I think that that is something that will, will, will not change. You know, there, there's a, there was a hotbed of that activity prior to it kind of really hitting the, the national scene. And it's obviously grown with that trend, but it's certainly something that I think is, is sustainable in that area. Terrific. Well, there's just a couple of questions I've got left for you guys. One is I'm curious, you know, we often talk about quality of life issues when we think about locating you know, corporate headquarters, let's say, professional office operations. But I'm curious how often you see that as an important site selection factor in the food and beverage industry. It comes down to talent, and quality of life is extremely important these days and and the ability to attract and, and retain talent. There are obviously perception issues about the types of jobs that are offered in the manufacturing environment. But in addition to that, it's also the location of some of those facilities. People want to live in places that they deem to be places to live. And a lot of times we just don't see too many manufacturing operations or enough manufacturing operations that are located in in those areas. And, you know, because of that, I do think it's extremely important to have quality of place as you're looking at the factors to take into consideration during a site location project, even for a manufacturing operation, because you're going to need to make sure that you're going to have that critical mass of people that are going to be there to, to work in your facility. Does that, to some extent, work against the challenge? You know, on the one hand, there's a, a real urgency in some ways in the food and beverage processing sector for competitive wages, if you will, but then you tend to have, I would think, in general, sometimes higher wages in the more attractive regions from a quality of life perspective. How do they, how do they sort of balance that question? I would agree, you know, with Scott's earlier point about, you know, this being a very cost-sensitive industry. However, at the end of the day, it it doesn't matter how cheap uh, an area is. If you can't get people to come to work and if you get get them to stay there, it's just not going to work from a location standpoint. And so this is something that needs to be factored into the company's model. It's kind of like you're trying to find that perfect marriage of a location that can give you better than average cost, but also deliver the quality of workforce that you need. Cool. Well, I want to kind of wrap it up here with one final question, which is really, we obviously covered a lot of ground today. We talked about some of the major trends in the food and beverage processing industry. We talked about what states and regions can do to position themselves to cultivate that industry, site selection criteria, the importance of talent. We hit on some of the advantages of Virginia, the importance of logistics and the port and so forth. I just want to wrap it up with really kind of an open question. Was there anything else you think is important for our readers to know when it comes to this industry sector from a site selection perspective, anything else you'd like to share? I think we really touched on a lot of the things that are important to this industry. I think you can see there's a lot of complexity that goes into the site selection process and kind of balancing all these factors. And so I think it's just important for states and regions and communities that want to attract this industry that they have a good understanding of the complexity and there's just a targeted strategy and resources available to support that type of development. And there's a commitment to that 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 doesn't also kind of create issues for 
companies that maybe with some of these projects it's been kind of reported well known that sometimes you'll find if locating in certain areas kind of exposes the risk of public opposition to projects. And so particularly in some of those areas where, as you touched on, Stephen, you're seeing maybe higher income housing and other higher in development and or, or particularly near urban centers. And so just having the support and kind of clarity on that and, and helping us and helping clients, you know, reduce the risk of those types of things. And as you get deeper into the process, these projects start out on a confidential basis and you learn more through the process about the company and the, about the operation specifically. So I think those are just some of the, the sensitive points that come into play in these types of projects and just things that We really rely on the expertise and the knowledge of the local environment when coming into markets that we're maybe less familiar with. And that's really the only thing I have to add to what's already been discussed. The the number of economic development organizations that have reached out to me, and I'm sure the other two guys on the call, to say, you know, we'd like to improve the way we attract food and beverage companies to our part of the world has grown tremendously from all across the country in, say, the past, I don't know, two to four years. There just seems to have been a a real increase in energy behind those efforts. And especially from some other states in the mid-Atlantic southeast, your geographic neighbors. So, you know, and these are not only state entities, but some of the big regional utility players, regional organizations, and even smaller communities who, you know, may have had a couple wins and want to further develop their cluster. They say, what can we do better? What should we have in place? And I, one of the things I encourage them to do is, you know, assign somebody to really stay on top of the industry and understand what's going out in the world of, you know, large and small companies in that industry, why margins are terrible, why there's a lot of M&A activity, what segments are growing or, or shrinking, you know, how agriculture factors into all that. Because all those things are, are real-life decisions that put pressure on food and beverage companies and that they legitimately do worry about. I've seen instances where economic developers who can you know, talk shop more effectively with somebody like me or my clients in moments where they're coming down to a shortlist decision really make them feel differently about their ability to help them get through the, the process of delivering a facility there. This is an, a segment that has been changing, evolving, and growing tremendously over the last few years. Anybody that's kind of coming to the table now is really just trying to play catch up at this point. Uh, fortunately for Virginia, they're not in that position. You know, you guys have been one of the leaders in this space, and so you're kind of in the driver's seat. But, you know, staying on top of this industry, continuing to watch it evolve, continuing to watch those trends, looking out for those companies that are starting out with a great product, a great idea, great marketing, watching them as they, you know, start their initial phases, most likely in a, in a co-packer type of environment, watching that production start to grow, watching their product really start to gain some traction. Those are, the, I think, the keys to really staying on top of this industry and making sure that you're finding those next generation of movers, those next generation of hot products, and really understanding which, uh, which of those have staying power, which is most important. You know, in, uh, initial investment into this industry is tremendous. It's not for the faint of heart. You can't just kind of go to market, build a giant facility and say, okay, great, we're going to produce this product, and it's going to be wildly successful. You know, these companies have to start small. They have to 
start with co-packing relationships. The number of those facilities that are in Virginia already is a great start there because a lot of these products are already being produced in a startup phase there. But just staying on top of those and and really developing and cultivating those products and and trying to keep them home in in the case of Virginia, I think is could be a major win for you guys. Thank you all so much for making time today. Brian, Scott, Brandon, really appreciate it. Appreciate our ongoing relationships with you guys and look forward to featuring guys in the next issue of Virginia Economic Reviews. Thanks so much for making the time, and I look forward to hopefully seeing you guys in person sometime soon. Fantastic. Thanks, Likewise. guys. Yeah, Thank you. you. Thank you. Take care, guys. This podcast has been brought to you by the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. Thanks for listening.